enthusiasm. I like that. That's good. Good sign. Ooh. Every Christian church, my name is Steve, I'm the lead pastor here, and let's begin this part of our gathering uh, with a word of prayer, so join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, and we are so grateful for that truth, as we just came here a few moments ago. We ask now, as we enter into this time, as we open your word together, um, as we consider the, uh, the example and the life of Jesus that you would take all the things that we bring into a, a, a space like this with us. God, some of us, we come in this morning, we are tired. We're worn out for different reasons. Some of us, we're hurting, we're, we bring pain uh, with us. Some of us are anxious, distracted. Others of us have really good things going on that can also uh, get in the way of hearing what we need to hear from you this morning. So, Father, we ask that you would take all of that stuff in your goodness, hold it for us for these few moments so that we might be fully present here to hear from your word, to be challenged, and to have the freedom and the courage to respond in whatever way we need to respond this morning. God, we give this time to you, ask that you would use it and that your spirit would move here. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, today we continue on in our uh, series in Matthew, and am I supposed to dismiss some children? All right, kids, you can go. <laughs> I always forget to do this part. Uh, we continue on in Matthew. We've uh, been in this journey for a while now. We're over halfway through uh, walking through the book of Matthew. We are considering the example of Jesus as we think about this new phase in the life of our church. And we've broken up this journey into seven parts or movements. We're in the fifth of those seven movements. This one is called a new community. And as Jesus begins to recognize that his time on earth is running out, he turns his attention to focusing on his disciples and in particular teaching to them, explaining to them, this is what this new community, this thing called the kingdom of heaven that I've been talking about and inviting people to, uh, this is what it's supposed to look like. And so this is kind of the framework for this section within the book of Matthew that we are in, this new Community. Now, I want us to begin this morning by, uh, by considering one of uh, Dr. Seuss's uh, lesser-known books. Great book, though. It's called Sneetches. Anybody here familiar with Sneetches? <laughs> familiar and also very excited about the Sneetches on beaches. All right, this book is about Sneetches on beaches, yellow creatures, some of whom have belly stars and others who have none on thars. Okay, that's the rhyme. That's the Dr. Seuss-ism that the book sort of hangs on. The star-bellied Sneetches uh, exclude and discriminate against the star-less Sneetches. They teach their children how to avoid them when they pass each other on the street. They do not invite them to their Frankfurter parties and marshmallow Rose. And as you might imagine, the star-less Sneetches don't appreciate this reality. So one day, a fix-it-up chappy named Sylvester McMonkey McBean arrives on the island with his amazing star-on machine. And for the low, low price of $3, he offers to put them through this machine and they all get belly or stars on their bellies. 
the original star-bellied snooches are not happy with this, of course. And so Mr. McBean says, hey, for the price of $10, I'll take those stars off of you. And then in this very Dr. Seuss way, there's this like long cycle of awning and offing of stars until the snooches run out of money. And at this point, Mr. McBean is like, I'm good. And he takes off. And the snooches are all mixed up. There are some with stars on their bellies and there are some without stars on theirs. And they can't remember who was what to begin with. And they come to this moment of realization, this moment of awakening, where they realize that, hey, snooches are snooches, And there are no best kinds on the beaches. It's a very heartwarming tale. It's a good story to read to your kids, but it's also extremely pointed satire. It's a very interesting story about how we divide ourselves against each other in these very arbitrary ways and how that gets exploited by people who want to make money in all kinds of different ways, right? Now, what does this have to do with our journey through Matthew? Well, to this point, we have seen Jesus be very clear that his, uh, his sort of primary audience as he begins his what's called public ministry is the lost sheep of Israel. And we see this uh, very explicitly in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has this moment of sending out the 12 disciples. He tells them to go only to the lost sheep of Israel. This first phase, you could almost call it a Jewish reclamation or restoration project. And, and for us, uh, our 21st century sort of PC mindset, this sounds like, what is Jesus doing? Why only the lost sheep of Israel? Is he, is he discriminating against the snitches without stars on their bellies, if you will? But there have been hints all along our journey in in Matthew that Jesus' mission is way bigger than just the lost sheep of Israel. All the way back to the very beginning of the book, the genealogy of Jesus. There are four foreign women, four Gentile women included in his genealogy. Shortly after that, these magi, these wise men from the east, so not Jewish guys, show up looking for the king of the Jews. They want to worship Jesus. John the Baptist does a very interesting thing. He moves from the temple. That's the typical place where a prophet would go out into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus interacts with a Roman centurion, part of the, the empire, the people who are actively oppressing his people. He heals his servant. We'll come back to that scene a little bit later, so remember that one. We see Jesus taking the disciples to the other side of the lake, to Gentile territory. We see Jesus diminishing the Jewish Sabbath and dietary laws. And all of this are are little seeds, little hints that are building towards Matthew's ultimate conclusion. The end of the book says the good news of Jesus is going to go to all nations. And so Matthew's been dropping these hints into the story all along the way that this is how this thing is going to move. And, And today's text. Today's, we're looking at two scenes. They're hinge moments, very important transition scenes moving us towards this all nations conclusion. So if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 15. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone on our team will come around and make sure you have a physical copy of the Bible. You can also follow along on this screen. As I said, we're going to look at two scenes this morning. I'm going to read the first one, talk about it a little bit, and then we'll read the second one and talk about that a little bit later. But beginning in verse 21, where it says this, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. 
My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. But Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged them, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Here's that phrase again. But the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. You have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, this is a weird scene. All right, what is going on here? It just seems like Jesus is being very rude, again, possibly racist. What is he talking about? Why does Jesus treat this woman in this way, talking about dogs and crumbs? What is up with the disciples wanting to send her away? And why does Jesus have almost this transformation moment to where at the end he says, this woman has great faith? What is going on in this scene? Well, to begin answering some of these questions, we need to put a bunch of different pieces together. One of the first pieces that we need to take note of here is the geography in which this story is taking place. If you look up at the screen, there should be a big map up here. It may be hard for you to read. But up in the sort of top left corner of the land, it says Phoenicia, right? Uh, kind of up along the water there. And the two little cities that, again, may be difficult to see, Tyre and Sidon. That is where Jesus is when he has this interaction with this woman. This is to the north of Galilee. Jesus has moved outside of Israel into Gentile territory. Now, a couple of other pieces. There's some connections here to what has come immediately before. If you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember that Jesus had yet another showdown with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are this uh, religious leadership sect. They are very loud. They are very influential among the Jewish people. And they keep butting heads with Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 12, they were arguing about the Sabbath law. And, and Jesus' interpretation of that was so offensive to them that, that they begin to break away from Jesus. And not just uh, in a disagreeing kind of way. They want to actually have him killed. Whatever this thing is that's going on with Jesus, this movement, the, the enthusiasm of the crowd, it needs to be stopped. They want to kill Jesus. Then a couple of chapters later, and again, this is where we were last Sunday, we see Jesus now breaking from the Pharisees. In fact, he has these very harsh and clear words, leave them behind. They are blind guides. Now, one motivation for this retreat to the Gentile north is that, again, there's been this confrontation. Jesus has offended yet again, and it's sort of like that Southwest commercial, right? Like, want to get away? This is Jesus' want to get away moment. Let's get out of here where it's really heated and tense, and let's go somewhere where we are, we're going to be able to fly under the radar. But it's interesting that Jesus chooses to go this far north. So many other places he could have gone to get away, to escape, to kind of take the heat off for a few moments. Why go so deeply into Gentile territory? Again, back to earlier in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus made it clear that the Old Testament purity laws were no longer binding in the ways that they once were. All the cultural customs that had grown up around them were, were not going to be the defining markers for God's people. Let the old ways go. Leave them behind, Jesus is saying. 
Remember, though, the, the impulse behind these laws was essentially good. It was about being distinct. It was about being different. To use uh, the rich Old Testament word, it was about being holy and set apart. We do these things. We wash our hands. We observe the Sabbath to remember our distinctiveness. But in retaining that distinctiveness, they had lost their connection with God. They lost the relationship. Jesus quotes Isaiah, They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. For Israel, distinct, was never meant to mean isolated. If you go all the way back to their origin story, Genesis chapter 12, God comes to this guy named Abram, later known as Abraham, and says, I am choosing you. You and your family, your descendants, are going to be my vehicle of blessing for the entire world. The entire world will know that I am the creator and that I love them and that I want a relationship with them because of your family. You will bless all families on the earth. Over time, though, that mission of blessing had turned towards inward isolation from relationship to ritual, from this inner heart transformation to the outward performance of these rituals. Their heart was far from God. And so they were missing that blessing. They were no longer a blessing. And so part of Jesus' mission, when he goes after the lost sheep of Israel, it's reversing this trend, calling Israel back to their original mission to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So now that Jesus has uh, essentially abolished the purity laws, of course, he would take his disciples to a place where this is going to be tested where they're going to be uncomfortable, where, where their newfound freedom is going to be stretched. This would not have happened if they had have stayed somewhere known and comfortable. It all would have remained sort of theory in their head. So here they are. They're in foreign territory. They are being stretched. They, are in, they encounter this Canaanite woman who represents two significant barriers that they had created. She's a woman and she's a Canaanite. Matthew uses the word Canaanite here very intentionally. She probably had a much more specific ethnicity or culture. Canaanite uh, is a term that sort of referred to any of Israel's enemies. And considering that Matthew's audience was primarily a Jewish audience, this would have been one of those like flashing signal words. Like, oh, this is someone we should not be associating with. So a couple observations we need to make about this Canaanite woman, given those boundaries, she is incredibly bold to even strike up this conversation with Jesus. Few Jewish rabbis would have given a woman the time of day. No Jewish rabbi would have spoken with a foreign woman. But she approaches Jesus and says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And we're not told what she knows or understands about Jesus directly. It sort of feels like she just kind of throws a bunch of stuff out, right? Like, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Whatever it takes to get his attention. And we've heard some of those titles before used in different ways. They can have different meanings depending on the context. Again, we don't know where she's coming from, but we do know this. She's incredibly bold and she's just going for it in this interaction. She recognizes at some level that Jesus has authority, that he is significant, that he's powerful, and that potentially he could be the answer to her problem, which is a very real problem. Her daughter is demon-possessed and 
suffering. She comes and Jesus says nothing. Easy for us to look at this and go, man, what is up with Jesus? Is he, you know, rude? Is he, uh, again, is he discriminating against her in some way? Like, what is going on with this silence? Now, we need to read this very carefully. Note what it does not say here. It does not say that Jesus leaves. It doesn't say that Jesus turns away from her. It doesn't say that he gives her the finger or whatever sort of rude kind of gesture you want to put in there. It just says he doesn't answer her. He doesn't say a word. I think he's silent because he's looking for a response. He's gauging the response not of this woman but of the disciples. What are they going to do? How are they going to respond to this woman? Given all that had happened recently, again, especially earlier in this chapter, they had a long walk from Galilee up to this region. I'm sure they talked about, hey, wait a minute. Like, do we really not have to wash our hands? Like, what does it mean to leave the Pharisees? How free are we from all of these sort of distinct practices that we've had for so many years now? After all that processing, again, here they are in a real-life situation. Jesus wants to see what are they going to do? How are they going to handle this? Now, they want her sent away. This is, not, um, uh, this is not overtly prejudiced, but they are definitely more annoyed uh, than offended, and they're definitely not open to this interaction. They just don't want to deal with it. So Jesus creates this kind of test. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, but the woman comes and kneels before him and says, Lord, help me. By the way, second time she calls him Lord. He replies, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is. Lord, third time she calls him Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Very bizarre conversation. Dogs, crumbs, master's table, what is going on here? Jesus begins the test with the standard party line. I have been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. She asks again. Demonstrating her persistence. He says, it's not right to give to the dogs what belongs to my children. This sounds really weird to us, but this was a way that, that, that Israelites referred to Canaanites. We're the children of God. You're the dogs. And her answer is just phenomenal. She says, no. Actually, she says, yes, it is right. It is right. Even we deserve some scraps from the table. And, and Jesus is blown away by her answer. Woman, you have great faith. You have great faith. Your request is granted. Her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, a couple more pieces we need to put together here. Remember back in Matthew chapter 9, we learned that our desperation should drive us towards Jesus. This woman is desperate, and it leads her to make this bold, audacious ask of Jesus. A very risky move. Matthew chapter 7 and 13, Jesus teaches that those who seek more of him will find more. And this is exactly what this Canaanite woman is doing. She is seeking. She is finding. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus encounters another Gentile, this Roman centurion, who's looking for uh, healing for his servant. And at the end of both of these scenes, Jesus 
says this Roman centurion, this Canaanite woman, have great faith. If you've been a part of this conversation, this should ring some bells for you. We've been talking about the bleak faith landscape of Israel, how Jesus has been going around and there have been places where he has not been able to do miracles or, or people have been rejecting him. The bleak faith landscape, this should also be contrasted with that word of endearment, uh, sort of uh, chiding endearment that he uses for his disciples, the Greek word oligopistoi, little faiths. The bleak faith landscape of Israel, the little faith of his disciples, contrasted with the great faith of a Roman centurion and a Canaanite woman. The kingdom of heaven is bigger than the disciples could have ever imagined. Are you with me? Now, let's look at this next scene. Uh, beginning in verse 29, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing. They praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. This is the third time in Matthew that he has explicitly named Jesus' compassion and how it has moved him to serve a group of people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciple answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. So he told the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and in turn, they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, and the number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got on the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Very recently, Jesus fed 5,000 people. This was one chapter before this. And there are some striking similarities between these two scenes. I'd love to dig into that a little bit more because it does raise the question, what's going on with the disciples? How do they not see that Jesus just did this? We were just in a situation with thousands of people, nothing to feed them, a few pieces of bread and a few fish, and what did Jesus do? It, he performed this miracle and fed all of them. Huh, what are we going to do now? I wonder how this will work. Right? How do they not see what is going on here? Again, a couple of uh, pieces that we need to put together to understand their confusion. We're told that Jesus and the disciples have returned to the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee formed part of the border between Israel and its Canaanite Gentile neighbors. So one part of the lake is Israel. One part of the lake is the other side of the lake, Right? It says here that they, uh, they are by the Sea of Galilee. And I think that Jesus, in this scene, feeding these 4,000, is on the Gentile side of the lake. And I want to give you a couple of hints and clues as to why that is. First, they've just been in Gentile territory, so it makes some sense that they would come down on that side. Second, it says that when Jesus heals these people, they praised the God of Israel. This is the only time in the book of Matthew that it uses this phrase, God of Israel. 
Why is this the only time he uses that phrase? Remember, his audience, primarily Jewish, when he talks about God, they would have assumed that he's talking about the God of Israel, about Yahweh. So to explicitly name that this group of people is worshiping and giving praise to the God of Israel for these healings uh, implies that they did not know and worship the God of Israel. This is a, again, non-Israelite crowd. Third, in the 5,000 scene, there were 12 baskets of leftover food. Twelve a symbolic number, almost always used in Scripture to refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. So 12 equals Israel. Seven, also a significant number, usually signifying God's presence. More general, broad number than the 12. Finally, it says that after all this, they get into the boat and they go to Magadan, which is on the Israelite side of the lake. Again, implying that they went from one side of the lake to the other. I think all of this helps explain why the disciples are so slow on the uptake here. Only sneeches with stars on theirs are included in God's family. Only sneeches with stars on theirs would be a part of this kind of of miracle, but nope, <laughs> surprise, the kingdom of heaven is for everyone. And so what we see in both of these scenes, the theme tying them together is that Jesus is exposing the disciples' prejudice. He's showing them how much bigger the kingdom of heaven is than anything that they had ever thought or imagined before. It wasn't that the disciples didn't believe that Jesus could feed 4,000 people. It was that they didn't think he would feed those 4,000 people. But here Jesus has taken them on this wild cross-cultural learning experience, teaching them some really important things about this new community. This new community is going to fulfill Israel's old mission of blessing all the families of the earth. This new community is going to be generous and it is going to be big. It's bigger than Israel. It's bigger than the imaginations of the disciples. And that bigness is exemplified through the breaking down of old barriers. Just as Jesus breaks down the holy profane barrier, this is again back to our conversation from last Sunday. Now he's breaking down the Jew-Gentile barrier. This is church for the rest of us, the outsider being welcomed in. This is really good news. I want to suggest a couple of ways that these scenes are good news uh, for us. First, we see here yet again the value of asking and seeking and knocking. For this Canaanite woman, her search leads her to Jesus. Her pursuit of Jesus leads to healing and restoration to even a resurrection for her daughter. We should be challenged and inspired by her faith her boldness, her risk-taking. Second, like the disciples, we all suffer from what I would call kingdom myopia. Our gospel can be too small. Our God can be too small. Our understanding of the kingdom of heaven can be too small. When we begin to decide who is in and who is out, who is deserving and who is not deserving, we get into some really dangerous territory. The most remarkable part of the story today, to me, again, is the disciples' general assumption that there was no way Jesus would do the same miracle 
for these people. It's like, how could they not see the parallels between those two things? But they had these cultural blinders on. They just couldn't see it. And if we're being honest, we do this all the time. I do this all the time. We all have our own set of cultural blinders. No way God could be at work here in this place with these people in these similar ways. But he is. And if we are willing to dig into this a little bit, this is actually very freeing for us. God wants to free us of our small worldviews, of our kingdom myopias. When we make him too small, he will remind us how big he is. When we make the kingdom too small, he will remind us how big the kingdom is. The good news of Jesus frees us from our sin. It frees us to be in right relationship with God, but it also frees us to be with each other. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, to close this morning, I, I wanted to um, have one of, my, one of my friends come and share with you guys a, a little bit. So most of you know, many of you will know uh, Jan and Jorge uh, Murray Garcia. They've been a part of our community for a long time, maybe as long as anybody and have led and served this community through some highs and some lows, through all kinds of adventures over many years. They've become good friends to, to us. We have a, a little bit of an Oakland bond, which is a deep bond, by the way, <laughs> the Oakland bond. And um, Jan, in particular, has given a lot of thought to the boundary-crossing nature of the kingdom of heaven. And not just thought, but, but action and practice in many different ways. So I've asked her to come share with us this morning. Let's welcome her as she joins us on the stage. And Jan, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions and you can share your answers with us. It should just be on. Okay. Here there it is. you go. So to start off with, just, just tell people a little bit of your story. Sure. Um, First of all, I just want to thank you, Pastor Steve, because um, you're putting into words, I think, a lot of us, things that a lot of us have experienced and want to know more about, but we haven't had a language for, and the, the structural inequality and the constraints and, and why we're so, we remain so unequal in this country despite being a so-called Christian country. It's been really neat to be seen in a different way. So I was born in Tulare in 1963, and um, my parents had come out from South Carolina with the great migration of African Americans, and uh, they'd been teaching in Tulare um, in, in the Central Valley for 10 years and were ready to settle down. I was a third of, of, of their children born, um, and so they wanted to buy a house in the newer part of um, Tulare, where the professionals, you know, kind of lived. And um, because of this phenomenon of redlining, where African Americans were not allowed to buy in the suburbs being created essentially for white folks, um, I can say that race has constrained my life from the start. I was six months old, and um, I didn't, my dad never told me the story. I think it was humiliating for him, but his rotary brother 
basically said, Bill, I can't do this. I got to live here. And so we left Tulare and went to the peninsula. And until I was nine, I was raised in Mountain View. Um, fast forward, um, I'm in San Jose as a high school student. And even before that, um, running out of hope, actually. I, I was um, a great student, a great athlete, had what people would say, everything going for me. And um, as I do today, continue to overthink that. And uh, just people were just trying too hard for what? And um, to maximize their evolutionary potential, to leave that behind, I, I that didn't make sense for me. And I wasn't nearly, I wasn't so much depressed as like, why? Everyone made fun of marriage. Okay, so that's not, the ball and chain isn't something to look for. Okay, what are we doing here? And I literally ran out of hope um, in the summer of 1980. I was um, part of Campus Life Youth for Christ and they um, invited several of us to a leadership conference down at Westmont uh, near Santa Barbara. And, and it was there that I feel like Jesus made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And um, from then on, he's been my reason to get out of bed in the morning and, and more and more. And, um, so that's how I, I came to know the Lord. From, from that standpoint, I had a, um, a mentor, a spiritual mentor, who said, how do you feel about being a leader, Jan? And in my mind, that wasn't uh, a good thing to aspire to. It wasn't a humble thing to aspire to. But um, um, here we are. So um, anyway, I, and I think it was in college, and um, it, it was clear to me that um, God had his hand on me to bridge, I think. Um, I, I'd grown up in, in largely white communities. Um, I had the language I had. But, but he was unsettling me. Uh, there's this thing in the evangelical Christian church about if we were all just Christians, there would be no inequality. And it became clear to me that that was not true. That even as you're sharing, they had Jesus right in front of them and they were still bigoted and exclusive. And, um, and I felt like probably, and I'm not comparing myself to these people, but like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, Susan B. Anthony, that, that somebody had to address the structural issues. And my grandpa was an AME minister um, in Charleston in the 1940s, and he worked for against the literacy test and the polling taxes for voting. And it, it just, we were in the midst of Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, and Christianity was kind of synonymous with republicanism, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't stop there, and um, and I kept thinking, what if, what if my ancestors um, had not addressed structural issues, had had just preached the gospel, and um, so that's that's where I am and why I do community activism, and and I feel like why God puts those opportunities. So tell us a little bit, uh, uh, so two questions here. One is, tell us a little bit about how that has happened here in Davis. And then the second question is, is I don't know if she hasn't said this yet, but Jan is a doctor and has been working um, 
in healthcare and with medical professionals for a while around this idea of cultural competence, and that has led her to a new discovery of the importance of cultural humility. So tell us a little bit about your activism and then also what cultural humility means. Well, um, again, um, or maybe it's the batteries. So, um, let's, try that. let's try that one. Okay, so Pastor Steve, I'm counting on, on you to, um, to remember I said three minutes, Jim, so a <laughs> question. So, um, my husband calls me, miss talking all the time, and we could be here till 2.30. So, um, I'll cut you off, don't worry. Okay, good. Oh, good. Okay, good. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that came naturally to me. We have everything. My kids have everything. My... Um, and, and Davis, they're kind of ideally set up, um, you know, two physician parents. Um, I'm a third-generation college-goer. Uh, um, but there was always, even in my family legacy, you take care of other people. And that's, that's what I've taught my children. Um, we've done a lot here through the church, leading that way. Um, not, not so much recently, but a, a lot. And... Um, Oh, it just made sense to me. And, and so I got involved in, in the schools when, in the early 2000s, um, there were some hate crimes committed by um, Davis High School students. And, and then you dug deeper, and it was clear that across the campus every day, people were having different and sometimes hurtful racial experiences. Um, so I started addressing that with an organization called Blacks for Effective Community Action. There were a lot of us, and, and that led me to a lot of the community police relations because a lot of the kids were being picked off and, and labeled and put into the criminal justice system, like, just like my kids, you know? And um, I remember somebody said, Jorge said, that somebody said to him, isn't Jan scared to to confront the police or to do all this around in the schools. And Jorge said, and is one reason I really, there are a lot of reasons I love him, but this is one reason. He said, Jan has been preparing for this moment or has been prepared for this moment um, for all her life. And um, so, you know, it was a good idea, but I also got the most important endorsement on this earth that I could. Um, when I went to, um, that was a part of me, um, if, uh, back up 1992, I was in residency at Oakland Children's, and um, the first, um, the first not guilty verdicts for the men who um, beat Rodney King came out, and there's all the riots in Los Angeles, and if, if you remember, there's one officer who was acquitted because he only kicked him in the head. And um, that led to a lot of deep discussions at Oakland Children's, which led to the uh, Children's Hospital Multicultural Education uh, Program. And at that time, this phrase, cultural competence, was really gaining traction. It had been coined by a Native American brother uh, working, working on the Child Welfare Act, but it had been co-opted by Western kind of health professions practice. So for me, as we started 
listening to community, having community teach at Oakland Children's, it was clear that the idea of competence, some kind of technical proficiency or you know, um, that kind of white coat expertise where the physician or the nurse is the smartest in the room always, was not gonna work in this way. That, that kind of competence model was about us and our mastery. And, and very clearly, I, I, I mean, in a mushy way, but I, I can't tell you the day, but it became very clear that Jesus would have talked more about cultural humility than he would have talked about cultural competence. And um, that just kind of emerged in 1998 um, in an article that we wrote. Um, and it, it resonated um, with people that it, it's, it's not what you know, because what you know is going to change tomorrow if you're talking about cultural groups and immigration histories and what happens at the border today that wasn't happening last year. So it, it's not about what you know, it's about your facility in creating trusting relationships with people who are different from you. And also, um, I think the most important part is not what you know, but how you value people and how you've been taught not to value people. So this is where implicit bias comes in. And, and it's not our fault. It's just what our country was founded on, that certain people have, their lives have different value. And, um, and so kind of unlearning that was about humility. But it's, it was hard for folks because, um, for me, that's not diversity training. That's identity work. And I, I felt like Jesus gave us an example in John 13 um, where he said, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And then that's the story of when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And I thought, yeah, that's it. That's more like it. Like, mm. you can risk being vulnerable. You can risk not knowing because it's not about... You're okay if you don't know. You're okay if you need to depend on that patient to tell you what's important in that episode of wellness or illness or, or whatever. But we've been trained not to see expertise in certain people and poor folks, uh, sometimes in women. We've been trained that brilliance doesn't come in darker skin. Mm. And um, if you say that that's not what you believe, I'm going to run the other way because then you just don't know yourself. There's no way that we, we all breathe the same smog of our history and our country. Um, no, another thing is, um, again, about vision and implicit bias and our value of people is um, the story in Matthew 25 where um, Jesus says, um, you know, when did you, when did you see me hungry? Or when did the phenomenon of mass incarceration, when, this is my application, when, when did you see me in prison, you know? Um, he identifies so clearly with folks. Matthew 8, when, he, when Jesus um, heals the blind man, and, and he does it in stages, I think a developmental stage where he, he uh, the first part, Jesus um, spit on his eyes and then said, what do you see? And the guy said, oh, I see people like trees. And so Jesus had to go back again and do something. And it's almost like that, like we see people, we don't quite get their worth. 
like my favorite Christmas carol, um, When the Soul Knew Its Worth. It's almost like we don't automatically see that in other people. Um, and that's, I'm, I know that's hard to think about individually, but I know if you look at our aggregate data, um, the inequalities are there in what we do in healthcare. The inequalities are there in who is suspended. Did y'all know African-American girls are five times as likely as, as white girls to be suspended in school? If you have one suspension, you're three times as likely to be involved in the criminal justice system. So this, it's, um, it's a different narrative, I think, than we're used to, but it's kind of like what you're getting to, that we, we are all part of the kingdom of God. Um, so that's where um, cultural humility, I can't tell you when he, he didn't, Jesus didn't sit me down with a whiteboard and tell me this is, but it, it made sense to me in, in loving him and learning from him and looking like the most humiliating moment of his life was the most impactful for us in eternity. So I think I can say I don't know when I don't know. Yeah. You know. Well, I'm going to ask you to say something, though. <laughs> so give us, uh, with all of that sort of as the backdrop, give us sort of one challenge for us as a yeah, church. Yeah, I'd community. love for us to be more diverse as a church. And um, there are a lot of unchurched people. There are a lot of black and brown people out there who don't, who don't have um, non-denominational places to go, and um, um, and I think part of that, there are big churches here, I think part of that is if they feel excluded as you, when they walk through the door, or are we out in the community, um, I mention our church a lot in the column I write in the Davis Enterprise, hoping that somebody gets that we're, we care about these issues. Um, and I, I just would really challenge us to, um, like cultural humility, to, it's not competence. It's not making people a project. And Jan said, go and bring two black people in by next Sunday. And, you know, so by Tuesday, you should be, you know, calling all the black people in your Rolodex, which for some of us would be not anybody. Um, but um, really prayerfully considering how you can push your boundaries because it's not natural for us. I don't, I don't, it's not natural for us, and especially I, I have compassion for, for white folks. It is, you could like murder somebody, but that's not as bad as being a racist in America. So we don't try, right? Or when it gets hard, you're like, oh, oh, I'm uncomfortable. I feel like someone's about to bite my head off. So that, that courage that it takes to, um, there are people at work. There are people who've come and haven't been comfortable. There are people in our lobby um, who need you to see them as more than trees moving through the lobby, who, who need you to see them like Jesus. So I, I would just challenge us to um, press beyond those comfortable margins. That's humility risking vulnerability, risking um, looking like a fool, but I would hope we would do that for Jesus and his kingdom. Oh, thank you, Jan. Mm -hmm. Do you, you mind praying for us? Sure. Thank you. 
My precious Lord Jesus, I, um, from the time of 16, you have given me a reason to be here. You are um, everything to us. God, I pray for our congregation. It's, it's relatively small and amorphous, and um, we can do this, Lord Jesus. Would you give us the opportunity to be a blessing to those who um, need a community to be part of? Would you give us the opportunity to open up our um, discovery groups? Um, even though it's comfortable and you don't want any more folks. And God, give us the courage and the vision and, and, and as Jorge just said, the, the compassion for people who are different. God, give us, give us a peace and a fullness and a joy that comes from letting go of how it's working for us and, and moving beyond that, Lord Jesus. We, we thank you and and, and we thank you. And may the lamb who was slain re receive the reward of his sacrifice. Make us, make us people who really act consistently, Lord Jesus, with the example you give us that resonates across these millennia. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we ask by your blood for this to be so. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's give Jan a hand. Thank you.